to Founder Chats by Bear Metrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, I talked with Jeff Solomon, co-founder of Markup Hero. In this episode, we talk about Jeff's story, his early entrepreneurial efforts, navigating a challenging time in school, all the way through launching new physical and digital products. Enjoy. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. How's your day going so far? Pretty good. I actually got to sleep in a little bit today. I had a uh, week where I had to wake up really early every day. I'm not a morning person. I'm I'm just not one of those entrepreneurs that wakes up early. Unfortunately, I'm a night person. Got it. Yeah. It's. it's I was actually just thinking about that um, today because I I did. I've had a bunch of seven and eight a.m. start dates or start times this week. And so today my first meeting was at ten. And so I got to you know actually like drink a cup of coffee and <laughs> have some breakfast and kind of chill out a little bit before getting into my day. It's like a, it's a, it's a true luxury. It really is. Yeah. In the fall, it's always busier for me because I, I teach this high school entrepreneurship class and it's a rotating schedule. So any day that I have class could actually be a different time, but it was the last three classes were at 8am. So and it's about 45 minutes away. So I had to hustle. Yeah. Brutal. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I'm so excited to talk with you. Usually what we do is just kind of walk through your story a little bit. And, and generally the best place to start is the beginning. So you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about, you know, where did you get started on your on your entrepreneurial journey? Well, it all started back with the lemonade stands. Yeah, I was always entrepreneurial growing up. My dad was not an entrepreneur. He was, you know, a warden guy. He was much more polished and very conservative and, you know, did not like to take risks. And so he didn't really encourage me to be an entrepreneur, but he did encourage me to, to you know, to explore business. And so I, I did the lemonade stand. I had this little car wash business. I had this like little sign making business. And so I was always into that, but I never really got mentored in that way and never was sort of shown that this is an actual path. I was just like, oh, this is a cool way to make some money when I was a kid. I was not a very good high school student, not for lack of trying, just didn't really fit the mold. And when I graduated, my dad said, you know, what are you going to do? And I was like, I have no idea. I graduated an English degree because I actually did. I started in business and, and failed economics, ironically. And so I was like, this, this sucks. I'm going to go into English. And I got out and my dad was like, well, go talk to this buddy of mine. He's got a company. Maybe he can hire you. And I went to work for this guy. He had a plastic manufacturing business. If you ever saw the movie, The Graduate, that happened to me. I mean, he's all, he's that famous quote where he says, plastics. I don't, know if, I don't know if your readers or listeners know that movie, but classic line anyway. So I started working there and I was, you know, I worked on their website and just kind of, this was in 1996 and the internet was kind of popping off at that time. So I was getting it, I was exploring that. And, you know, I really learned a lot about how to build products and bring them to market there, physical products. And I realized that I didn't like manufacturing because it was really slow. It took a year or longer to get something out. And I really started to find interest in in, in technology and, and how quickly you could prototype and get things out. And I bumped into some people that were starting a startup and I joined them and left that company. And we had a nice little ride. I made a little bit of money and my ego got inflated. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go start my own thing. And this was right at the turn of internet crash. And that first startup I started with uh, five other founders, so six founders, which is too many. They were all like bros. They were all friends. Like one of them was my best friend from high school. Another kid was from high school. And uh, that company just crashed and burned. I would like to say it was purely because 
of the internet bubble crashing down, that certainly didn't help, but it was largely just due to the fact that we had no business model. We, had, we were not solving any problem that anyone cared about, which I later learned was kind of important. But that got me started. That got me sort of the taste of what it's like to hustle and have, have 10 people working in your living room and you know all that fun stuff that, that goes along with building a startup from scratch. And, you know, I just continued to, to work at it and eventually started building companies that actually did solve a problem that people were interested in and needed. And, and, you know, success kind of came from that, but it was, it was a struggle for that first four or five, six years where I failed and then just was like bumping around trying to figure it out. Cause no one ever showed me. I never, I never took any classes. There was not a lot of resources in Los Angeles in the late nineties early 2000s, there, there wasn't a lot of, th- I just didn't know. I was just sort of trial and error in it, you know, which is, you don't have to do that today. So much easier. I mean, I, I guess there's, it's a little bit meta because that's a part of the point of this podcast as well. You can just like listen to the path that someone else went through and then they can ideally avoid a lot of the, the mistakes that you needed to sort of run into head first. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I, I love about, you know, what I do today. I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. I um, advise a lot of companies. I teach this I teach entrepreneurship to high schoolers, ironically, at the high school that I went to. So I barely graduated. I was like number the second to worst GPA in the class. And now they have me back there and I teach, you know, this entrepreneurship course. I've been teaching it for six years there. That worked out pretty good. And, and now I get to help these other kids that are kind of like me that are sort of like, hey, what, where's the path that I can follow? Because this normal get A's and get into Berkeley path is not working for me, you know? So it's, it's great to kind of participate in that ecosystem now, having had some success and experience. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I feel like that's a, a very common story of the worst student or one of the worst students actually, you know, you, you sort of learned that it's actually sort of the model of school didn't work quite as well, but they actually go on to hopefully, you know, in your case, you figured out what was going to work for you. And then you can kind of go back and, and share that in some way. I feel like there's an irony to that of like, Hey, I'm going back into the system that sort of you know, dictated that I was, you know, bad at this, you know, I, I was, you know, I got rated poorly. And, and now you're asking me to come back and like, actually be an instructor. But on the other hand, it sort of feels like, well, that's that actually feels like the appropriate correction that you can't design, like school is definitely not going to be for everybody. So it's so much better that students get some sort, you know, they can see that there is another path of, you know, like, you know, this is school is certainly not the ultimate predictor of your of your overall success. That's yeah. I mean, the irony is not lost on me for sure. When I when I went back there, I had that exact feeling. But I, you know, I will give this school and other schools credit for you know realizing that on the one hand they have to conform to some consistent structure in order to scale. You know, it is a business in in a way, and so you can't do everything for everybody. So they have to kind of do that. But they are starting to see, particularly the private schools, are starting to see that they're they need to at least. Uh, let students explore other paths. And so when they leave, they know, hey, there there are many paths and, and you can find other ways. You may not have seen them all here at your time at this school, but when you get out there, you're going to have an opportunity to explore a lot of that. And and so that's that was the real motivation for coming back and teaching. It was like, I want to let these kids know that, you know, this one path that they kind of subscribe to there, which works for some people. Like there are kids that just, you know, get A's and and go to Berkeley and, you know, become bankers, you know, that's still a path. But, you know, for, for me and for other, other kids out there, there's that's, that doesn't work. 
I really like that, the, the education and teaching. And, you know, that's why I, I built, I have an online course now that's basically my semester long class in a two hour nutshell. That's a big part of, of my story, but I did have some success. It wasn't all, all hard failures. You know, I finally did find my way to some wins. So it was cool. That's great. Yeah. I'd love to kind of to go back and dig in a little bit along the way for the story of like, you know, well, with the, you know, with the lemonade stands, how, how successful were the lemonade stands? Did you, did you do well? Did you, did you make good money in lemonade? Yes. My lemonade stands r- really worked well for a number of reasons. First of all, my mom would buy the frozen lemonade containers. And so all I have to do is make the lemonade. So my cost to run the operation was very low. I didn't have any, you know, inventory overhead. So that was cool. But I was very good at marketing. And I didn't realize, you know, I will pass by a lemonade stand today and they'll, you know, they'll be sitting at the stand and they'll have a little sign and it'll be on a side street, largely because their parents don't want them to be on a big street. But at the in the 80s, when I was doing this, parents were like, you know, much more lax with their kids than they are now. So, you know, I was out on a busy street, you know, where they had tons of cars and tons of pedestrians and I would have signs all over the place and I would like, you know, stand up and hold my sign up. And I was, you know, I was kind of crazy. And so people would just have to stop and see what's going on. Even if they didn't even know we were selling lemonade, they were like, what are these kids doing? So yeah, so that worked well. I mean, I would, you know, we'd go out and sell lemonade for an afternoon and we'd make, 50, 60 bucks, you know, for the, two, for the two kids that were doing this, which is pretty solid. See, so, yeah, I was, that's I, like, that's like a million dollar in, in, <laughs> you know, in kids, kids money <laughs> when you're eight yeah, or 10 for sure. It is. And the eighties too. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and yeah, like, yeah. What's, what's the like relative unit of measure. It's like, well, you know, how much, how much candy can you buy with $50? Like you can buy enough candy to make you like so sick to your stomach. It's just like, you know, it's a, it's an incredible, it's an incredible bounty that you can, you can afford yourself. For sure. And then when I started doing car washes, you know, we would go door to door. We had this little cart that we built that had all our gear in it. And we go door to door on a Saturday and Sunday and we'd make, you know, two or $300. You know, this was more when I was like 13, 14, but that was hard work because we were actually washing cars, but you know, I was making decent money. Cool. And did you feel like, I know it's probably difficult to think back to like to the time, but do you feel like any of those lessons sort of like rubbed off on you or, or was it something that, you know, maybe you didn't connect the dots on until, until later in your career of like, Oh, actually that was, a you know, we actually kind of figured a lot of interesting things out. Yeah. I didn't connect the dots. I, I think I did gain the learnings, which was actually has been my experience up through, you know, that first failed startup was I was actually learning a lot during the time that I was seemingly failing and I didn't connect those dots until way later. But like, as an example, in high school, I actually was learning how to write, you know, it was a very scholastic oriented school and I was, you know, getting C's and sometimes D's on my papers, but I was actually learning something and it just didn't stand out relative to the rest of the students. You know, I just was on the curve perspective. I was on the low end. But when I got to college, you know, I started acing my English classes, which is ultimately why I became an English major, because it was just the path of least resistance. And I didn't at the time realize why I was just like, oh, this is weird. Like this class is easier. Okay, I'll just do this class. But I actually had learned how to write and compile my thoughts very well. And that particular skill has served me incredibly well throughout my career. I think, you know, writing and communicating ideas is a big part of being an entrepreneur and a business person. 
And so I was learning. And even those days at the doing the car wash and the lemonade, I did learn, you know, how you can approach marketing in different ways or how you can approach sales in a different way. And how, you know, when some, you walk up to someone's house and they say, no, I don't go want a car wash. I would say, well, what about this? Or how about this? Or what do you think? And I would just try different stuff until I got a yes. And all those skills were starting to implant in, in me. I just, you know, I didn't know it. And then later, as I started getting more formalized around my business process, like, oh, actually, you know what? There were a lot of times where I was practicing this. It just, I just didn't realize it. So, so yeah, I think I, I did learn a lot. I just didn't know it. Nice. Was there any sort of like dissonance as you were going through school of like, Hey, you guys are saying that I'm like bad at, you know, <laughs> I'm bad at doing these things, but I'm also being like successful on the su- side here. Did, did that thought ever occur to you or was it more like, well, you know, you're, you know, did you sort of accept, you know, the, the system at, at face value? Yeah, unfortunately, I did accept it as face value. I really had had left high school feeling like, you know, I'm not that smart, which is unfortunate. And I really want to tell my students now, like, you know, try not to do that. And when I, I got to college, I mean, I applied to 12 colleges when I was in high school because everybody was applying to all these schools. So I applied to 12 and they didn't have online applications at that time. So I had to write like 12 essays and like do every fill out the form like 12 times. And I only got into one college. And so I was like, oh man, this is consistent with my overall negative experience as a student at school. So I left feeling like kind of dumb. And it until thankfully when I got to college and I started getting A's without having to do a lot of work, I realized maybe or I started to think maybe I wasn't. So yeah, it had a negative impact on me for sure. And I did not connect like, hey, in my personal life, I'm out here having fun, making some money and doing cool stuff that doesn't jive with my experience in school. And I didn't unfortunately have anyone that was sort of telling me that you know, like, Hey, look at this, this, there's something good happening here that, that suggests that, you know, your challenges in school may not actually be an indicator of how smart you are or, or whatever. So yeah, I did have some, some sad times in that way. Sure. Yeah. And it, it kind of sounds like you had the, your, the parenting, the style of your parents was, was very by the books too. So they probably weren't very new age from saying like, well, yeah, the, you know, our kids doing poorly in school, but they're excelling in other ways. It's more like, you have to do well in school. Like if you don't do well in school, you're, you're doomed. So maybe there's a little bit of reinforcement for, for that kind of, you know, line of thinking as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my parents, I think that's the message I heard. Thinking back to my mom, she probably was a little new agey. She certainly tried a lot of things to get me to, to do well in school. You know, I remember this one time, you know, we'd go to like tutors or different things. And one time she just was like, we're going to try this different thing. And I went to see this lady. I haven't thought about this in years. I went to see this lady who lived out in like Topanga Canyon here in California, in Los Angeles, just like kind of like a hip, hippie ish area at the time. And she's like, Oh, we've heard some good things. This lady has this box that you like get into. And I don't know what she told me it would do. But anyway, I go to see this lady. She was nice, but she was hippie ish. And she has this box, this like metal box that's maybe like, eight by eight. So you can fit in it, but it's fairly tight. And you close the door and it has these like flashing strobe light things. And maybe it had some music and you like sit in there. And essentially I was meditating. You know, I I didn't know anything about meditation like I do now. And the idea was to try and like clear my mind or whatever, and put me in a better position to 
to do well. But it just felt, it was so weird and I felt so odd, but my mom, you know, encouraged me to just try this thing and, you know, it didn't really help. I still felt, I still had the same results, but, you know, she definitely was out there trying whatever she could to get me, but she didn't, she didn't know what an entrepreneur was, or she didn't know how to explain to me, you know, she was just like, Hey, I'll try anything to get this kid to not feel dumb. Cause I know he's not dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's interesting. It's kind of, kind of cool too. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's one of those things where like, yeah, you can kind of maybe, maybe think about the attempt of like, yeah, you know, I we probably could have guessed that the, the putting the kid in the box with the flashlights is like probably not going to do it, but there's something to be said about like, well, you know, you know, the attempt, I don't know if you had this feeling, you know, at the time, I'm kind of glad that, you know, the, you, you have somebody that's like, well, at least they're trying, like, yeah, at least they're sure. like not accepting at face value. Maybe at the time as a kid, you're like, you know, okay, this is, this is weird. <laughs> this is a, you know, mom, please don't, <laughs> please don't let <laughs> women, like strange women from the Valley, like put me in boxes anymore. <laughs> yeah. That was more yeah. my thought, but she, I, you know, in retrospect over time, I, I built a, a great relationship with my mom and, and, you know, realized that she really was trying to get me to see, you know, other paths in her own way. I just didn't realize it at that, at that time, which I think, you know, when I, when I raise my own kids, I have 12 year old twins. And so I use those experiences. I want desperately to like, let them know that like, they're smart and they can find their way and all those things that I, that took me so long to figure out. But I also realized that like, you know, when you're a kid, you don't connect the dots, like you said, nearly as well as you do when you're an adult. And so it's a challenge and kids, and I probably was the same way. Kids aren't great at like indicating the dots got connected. So I'll like, I'll like say something to my kids and in my mind, I'm looking for, Oh dad, that's so awesome. Like I really connected the dots there. Thanks for doing that for me. Like, that's what I want to hear. But no, I get like, okay, uh, all right, that cool. Thanks. You know? And so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's tough. God, you're, you're so lame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to consider. Like, what was your going from high school into college? Do you have like, did you have any indication at that time? I know that you you found English to be like something like, oh wow, I can actually get results without what feels like a phenomenal amount of effort. So that's the direction I want to go. But but before you found that, do you remember what was going on in your mind as far as like, well, what is it that you're looking for, or what you know, what might be the direction? What was propelling you through? you know, going from high school into college at that point in time? Mostly it was just wanting to, you know, move on. I, I don't have like, in retrospect, I don't have this negative experience of high school. Like I had great friends. Like I, most of my memories are good, which is, I mean, it's great that it didn't like destroy my psyche, you know, from, from a scholastic, the scholastic negative aspect. So I didn't have a terrible experience. Uh, I just didn't do very well and it was challenging. But I was definitely ready to get out and go do something else. And I'd certainly heard and observed and knew that college was more fun and you could do more stuff and you could be an adult. And so I was definitely looking forward to all that stuff. And but in terms of, you know, what path I was going to go on and as a stepping stone to my career, I really had no idea. So at that time, I was still like, well, my dad's a business guy. So I guess that's what I need to do. So I'm like, I'll just go into business. And I knew like with the, you know, the, the, the lemonade stands and the other entrepreneurial things I had done, I figured it still made sense to go down that path. And so I, you know, I started as a business major. And like I said, I took macroeconomics and 
I didn't like it at all. And I got, I got a, I think I got a D or maybe I got an F in that class. I might've gotten an F in that class. And I was like, if this is what business is all about, then I'm not, I don't like it. And right. Yeah. This sucks. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So no, I didn't really know the path. And then I ultimately, I just found that it was just a great place for me to, you know, get decent grades and have a good time. And I just let go, you know, and just enjoyed my life for four and a half years. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's like, I think that there's this like, there's this kind of like meme about like people who go to college and or go to university and they like, just like, you know, party for four years. And, you know, maybe like they, the idea is like they're wasting time or something like that. And then I think like, I don't know, at least as, as I've sort of looked ahead of like, there's a really powerful sense of like, when you stop, you know, when you stop thinking about should, especially like a, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, like there's like all these things that you should do and you should be doing this and you should get good grades and you should, you know, study hard. It's like when you actually kind of tune into like, well, hey, like, what do I want to do and what do I need? Generally, the results are better. And it kind of sounds like that's something you had there of like, as soon as you let go of like, well, this is what I should be doing. And you're like, well, this is kind of like, I can get really good grades and also have a good time and enjoy myself and, you know, expand my network. And, you know, probably you weren't thinking this, but, you know, I can expand myself as an individual. It feels like you had a much better outcome than if you said like, no, I must become, I must become a business major. I will retake economics <laughs> over and over again until I eventually get a high enough grade to, to pass and, and, you know, move forward. Yeah, that was definitely the former was my experience. And I, I didn't deliberately think it that way. It just sort of happened. And I guess, you know, my parents were sort of okay, I guess, because I was getting decent grades. And they kind of also didn't know really what was going on there. I yeah, it was an opportunity for me to explore me. That was exactly what I needed. You know, I needed some time to just like, let myself be myself. And that that was a key growth element for me as a human being, you know? So ultimately I think that was the learning that I needed. Maybe other kids need other things. Maybe other kids do need the the structure and the, the, the class and the scholastic element of college. And I certainly seen those students do well, but yeah, I, I fell into the, it worked out perfectly because I ended up going to, you know, the right school, even though I got into one and I had the right experience and, you know, just, it left me other than I, it was a very big party school. I went to Arizona State at that time too. It was particularly party central. So I definitely got myself into some, down some paths that were probably not super healthy or definitely were not super healthy. So I had to unwind some of that later in life. And that's been part of my story as well. But it definitely was what I needed at that time. Just like, you know, find who you are and, and you can get back to what career you're going to do later. That's really cool. During your college experience, was there any kind of early seeds or, or looking back, did you see anything that started to say like, oh, well, you know, any experiences of like, oh, this is like kind of putting me down a more entrepreneurial path? Or was it really just like, like you've been saying, like, we're going to, you know, get some good grades, we're going to kind of find ourselves a little bit, we're going to have a good time. And then, you know, we're going to face the rest of life when we when we get to the other side of this this college experience. Yeah, I pretty much kicked the can on career path at that time. It was much, it was almost purely about, you know, exploring being a kid again, you know, and just enjoying myself. Like I said, I did start to really enjoy writing and, you know, doing well in those classes. And I, I started to think like, hey, what what does that look like? Where, where does that fit into my career path? And the other thing I learned about 
English was that it was in the liberal arts college and the liberal arts college let you take all kinds of other classes that gave you credit, including art classes. You know, you could get the same amount of credit for taking woodshop that you could for taking, you know, Shakespeare. So <laughs> I took a lot of those classes too. And I always knew that I was pretty good working with my hands and building things. And I got to explore that a lot too. And so, you know, I, I started to have some thoughts like, oh, is there, you know, something physical in, in building that will be part of my, my future? And it, it kind of was, I guess, in the first job, the manufacturing business that I worked in. I didn't actually work on the factory line, so I didn't touch things like that. But I, I did. There was a good connection between building things in the physical world and building software. It, you still have to visualize it in your head. And so I think that skill actually translated really well into becoming a, a product-centric tech entrepreneur. You know, I could, I could really visualize how I wanted something to come together. And that, that was the same, whether it was a, a, a physical item or a piece of software, what the interface would look like and how a user would go about using this particular product. So that served me very well throughout my career. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. It, it's, I feel like it goes back to that kind of thought process of like, it's relatively difficult to teach somebody the art of the art side of building a business, like the, the science side of like, you know, you can teach somebody accounting and you can teach them finance and you can kind of teach them like structures and models, but that, that specific piece around like, well, you're going to have this like idea in your head, but in your head, it's going to, you know, it's, there's no, <laughs> no shapes or boundaries or anything. And like, how do you actually sort of manifest this thought that you have? And that's like an incredibly difficult thing to like, like, I don't know how you would teach somebody that if you kind of like had like, the art of manifestation of like, <laughs> like providing you're like, you're like not going to like a, you know, like a wizard college or something like that. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult to teach that. So I've heard a similar story a few times and I experienced it too. So I have a, I have a degree in music and like, yeah, like you, you sort of have all those like weird, it's like, you're not teaching like this is the, this, you are in the business school and this is how you like, when you have an idea this is how you actually like start. And these are the steps that you follow. But you can put people in situations where, you know, on a smaller scale, like I think like Woodshop is a great example. Like you get a, a chunk of wood and you need to transform it into your vision. And you can kind of like, because it's, it's physical, you can like see the steps along the way and you can get to the end and realize that, you know, maybe, maybe it sucks. You know, maybe it's like, oh, this doesn't work at all how I want. But I, I think that's such a, such a great, experience. And yeah, I can totally see why that sort of plugs directly back into like, it doesn't feel like Woodshop is like a part of your entrepreneurial education, but I can, I totally get how that does make a connection. Uh, and it, it gives you those great skills that you can build on from there. It did. I mean, you could, I could probably do a whole session on, on mapping the, the things I did in Woodshop to my career. And, you know, one thing that just popped in my head is as you were describing the block of wood converting into something, I did a lot of iterating in Woodshop. So I, I would have a vision for something. I would start building it and it would start going someplace that I didn't like. And then I would change. I would be like, okay, well, I guess if I don't put this here and I can make that piece look like this, I could actually convert it into this other thing, which I really wasn't thinking about at first. And so I, I learned a lot about iterating, which is something you have to do a lot of as an entrepreneur and, and building and launching a business, right? You'll, you'll start with something and then you'll talk to customers and you realize that something isn't going to work as well as you thought it might and you'll adjust. 
And and so there there was that skill being learned at that time too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and you you have to in a very you know, relatively low stakes environment, you have to say, okay, well, I've I had this idea and I started down the path and I've gotten additional information now and maybe it's either going to be harder to get there or you know, I just, you know, the the shape of the wood is not turning into the shape that I imagined. So, am I going to stick to my original idea and try to figure a way to work around that issue? Or am I going to change actually the direction that we're going based off this new information or some combination of the two? You like run into that all the time. So it's like kind of, it's incredible to have an experience where you get to sort of make, you get to, you know, wire those, those neural pathways in a pretty safe and, you know, low stakes way. But then, yeah, I'm sure I totally believe that, you know, you running into business situations, you, you know, the brain is already wired to, (laughs) to, to go down, to go down that path. And you've, you've got, you've got reps on that. Yeah, that's a really good observation. I think if people look at education and college in that way, where you're like, hey, this, these synaptic paths that your brain builds are applicable to many different things, you know, not just that one use case. There's probably a ton of stuff that is formed during those times. And that, and this is a great example of one that for me, that gets reused later in life. That's, I never thought about that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, can you think of any other examples? Not to put you on the spot because that was so profound. But any anything else from the you know the kind of uh, liberal arts education that sort of has built processes or systems that you or or you know just experience that felt unrelated, but you you feel like you can actually implement pretty well at the time, or you can implement. Yeah, well one other thing that pops into mind, you know, I've I'm pretty good convincing, and you know my my girlfriend likes to say like, oh, you're such a good manipulator, you know, and it's a, it's a balance. But in, in business, like you have to be able to get people to see what you want them to see in a way where they are excited and happy and fired up. You know, you can't truly just manipulate someone to some, something that they are mad about after the fact, they just do it because they forced to. And I do remember many times in class, particularly these poetry classes that I took, where I had to get the teacher or other students in the class to see the vision I was trying to articulate in, a, you know, a piece of writing. And so there was a lot of dialogue and debate in, in those classes where, you know, I learned to get people to come to my side, you know, and see what I was seeing. And that, like I said, that skill has been hugely beneficial, whether it's sales conversation or with investors, you know, getting an investor to say yes is all about, you know, getting them into your camp and seeing the vision that you see, you know, in a way where they're like, they feel kind of like they figured out that themselves, you know, and uh, the whole inception thing, you know, if you can incept an investor to, you know, to think they came to the conclusion themselves, like they're going to be fired up to, to join you on the, on the journey. And so I think there was a lot of that. And even, even with friends, you know, just getting people to, to follow the path that I thought was going to be the most fun, you know, or the best night. And people like to hang out with me. And I had a great social network at, at school because of that, you know, I always made it a good time for everyone. I was very thoughtful about that stuff and that served me well in, in building an organization. You know, in fact, in the first company that was really successful for me, this company Velocify, which we started in 2004, which is like a CRM business, which we sold in 2016. I was huge on culture at that time. Like I was trying to build this, this team of people that literally, I wanted them to think that we were curing cancer and they come into work and like, dude, we're curing cancer day. Like we got to do everything we can to solve that, you know? 
And so that was kind of part of my mission is building this incredibly tight knit culture. And that was kind of this looking back, that's sort of the same thing I wanted to do when I was in college. And I had these friends and and tried to get them to sort of join this mission that I that I had in my mind. And that, you know, that translated really well to that business. And we did, we, you know, we had this culture early on when we had like 25 people or less than 25 people. And, you know, people would come into the office, they'd stay till two in the morning and just, you know, we were, we'd go do activities together. It was like a real family. Yeah. That's so cool. And I can, I can imagine you developing that skill, like in, in poetry class. <laughs> and I feel like, the, like I can imagine this sort of like, not existential, but you know, these, these sort of like esoteric conversations where the, the professor's like, that what you've written is not a poem. <laughs> and you're like, no, I need, well, first of all, I need a, a good grade here. And the, the objective was to write a poem. So I'm going to have probably what is an extraordinarily wild conversation about what I have, the thing that I've done here is a poem. And I need to convince you that like, it's like, you know, at some point it's like, we're just totally outside the realm of like normal human conversation. But yeah, that, that makes, you know, like you're saying, being able to kind of look back and connect the dots. Like, yeah, that makes perfect sense that if you can, if you can convince somebody that really doesn't start on the same page with you, that you've written a poem and you think it's a poem and you can bring them to your side, that feels like an incredible skill to develop. And, you know, when you actually have something of like, hey, this is a good business opportunity, or we are on an important path. And we are, you know, in a world where I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if what you had written at the time was a poem, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say you, yes, you <laughs> did write a poem. But you know, there, what is a poem? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. So I think when you actually have, you know, backup to say, like, hey, what we're doing here at this company is important. It's probably an even easier scenario that you're not sort of operating strictly in the world of, you know, sophistry. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. I think that was definitely the way it went down there. I think it was a poem. <laughs> yeah. Back. Yeah. Let's see. Actually, let's, let's, let's bring it up. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll set a, we'll, we'll put a poll out and say, everybody, you know, <laughs> is this a poem or is this not a poem? That'll be the big, uh, that'll be the big marketing push around this episode of, you know, we'll, we'll get some billboards and, and, you know, really, really go all out on whether or not this was a poem or not. <laughs> I like it. Cool. So, so when you when you got out of college, was that when you went and and began working at, began uh, working at the the uh, plastics company? Yeah. So my my dad said, "Go talk to this guy," and I remember very clearly. Good dude has run the, had this company that was like fifty years old. It was an old stodgy business, but you know, made money. And he was like, I don't know what you can do. Your dad's a really smart guy. I'll just hire you and you figure it out. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, so that's how I got my first job. You know, he, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I just sort of found my way at that company. And it turned out to be a great proving ground for me because, you know, I brought this, this energy and this fire of this young entrepreneurial kid into a business that had been doing the same thing for the last 50 years. And most of the people who worked there were lifers. You know, they had been there for 20, 30 years and they had never seen someone come in and, and propose changes, you know? And the, the cool thing was there were either by way of those people being entrepreneurial in their hearts or just totally burned out and over it. Right. Yeah. It may have been a combination of the two. Yeah. They were, you know, they were, 
open to my suggestions and let me kind of run with, you know, not only ideas for products, you know, I launched a ton of products there, some of which, you know, sold millions and millions of units and still sell. But I also implemented a ton of processes because I would just go in and, and, you know, when you're manufacturing, there's a lot of steps, which is the part that I hated, you know, because it just took too long. But in those steps, they had developed processes to run them, which you have to do in a business. But those processes were archaic and they certainly weren't using technology in it. And even in 96, we had Excel, you know, so I would go in there and be like, well, why are we doing this? You have this step that goes to this step that then goes back to that step. It's just, it didn't logically make any sense to me. And so I said, well, what if we did it this way? And then, you know, a few people would be like, oh, no, 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 we, you know, we always do it this way. It works. It works. Don't mess with it, you know? But then some of the more senior people were like, hmm, okay, yeah, that actually kind of makes some sense. Maybe we'll try that. And so a lot of the things that we did, I, I flipped on their head and we ended up being way more efficient and making less mistakes. And I just, you know, I started to learn that A, you could change, but B, that there are many different ways to do things and some are better than others. And that was satisfying. You know, I was there for two and a half years and I learned a, a ton there. And I had some good mentors that I met there that weren't entrepreneurs, but they were, you know, encouraged me to just run with, you know, my, my ideas. It was a great place. Wow. That, that's, in, that's incredible. I've been at a couple of different companies where there was sort of the same setup where, where these, these businesses would, you know, sometimes there, there may be more older businesses stuck in their way and they bring in younger, you know, like theoretically, credentialed people that, you know, are from a good school or whatever from a from a program. And they they kind of have had the same sort of setup of like, hey, like well, we don't we don't know exactly what we want you to do, but we want you to kind of come in here. We want the the benefit to you is you're going to get some of this entrepreneurial experience. And the benefit to us is we're going to get these, you know, these young, fresh ideas. And I think that uniformly I've seen that fail. I'm trying to think of a scenario where that actually turned out well, you know, where that person wasn't sort of stymied with, first of all, they don't have the work experience to make the good recommendations. And secondly, they're, they're given no direction and kind of no authority. And, you know, people aren't really interested in changing. I'm curious, like, how did that work for you? <laughs> how did, how did, how did you do that? I mean, in the thick of it, I, I didn't realize I even was. It just seemed it was more intuitive and logical to do certain things a different way. And, you know, like I said, for whatever reason, it was just the right place at the right time. They were open to a lot of it. Sure. I got blocked some, you know, more than I wanted to for sure. But overall, I was able to move through the system and it was just kind of a perfect storm. Cause I think you're right. Most of the time it does not work out. Like I've observed it from, from other people that have had, you know, similar experiences have gone in similar companies or they brought in like consultants, like that almost never works, you know, where they know that things aren't, are broken. And they're like, well, let's bring in these Bane guys to come in and fix it, you know, and that rarely, rarely works. But it was just this, I was just one kid, you know, I was, I was 21 and the next youngest person at the company, other than those working on the factory line or the warehouse, they had, you know, younger people there. But in terms of the, the, the corporate side, you know, the next youngest person was like 35. And so there was just nobody bringing those fresh ideas. And, and I guess part of it, one of the interesting things about that business is they were a plastic manufacturing company, but they had a few product lines and one of their product lines their a big one was in the 
sports collectible space. So at the time, and even today, they made these baseball card sleeves. The company's called Ultra Pro. And they were the number one sleeve, like best plastic, what best well-made, you know, just they had a good brand in the market amongst these trading card collectors. Well, at the time, this was, like I said, 96, there was a new game and a new movement that was coming at that time. This game, which maybe you've played, or I'm sure many of your listeners know about, called Magic the Gathering. And this was the very first big very large collectible card game where it was a card game, but the cards themselves had scarcity. And so there was a baseball card collectability element to it. And the game was also very good. The mechanics of the game were genius. And that game was blowing up and it was creating this whole new market of gaming slash collectible enthusiasts, which still exists today. Magic Gathering still exists. In fact, it's, it, the company was sold to Hasbro and they, they have grown it. But these guys and the CEO of the company, my dad's buddy, was intelligent in the sense that well, he's a smart guy for one, but he was very smart to go out and look for these license deals. So he had deals with the MLB, he had deals with different comic book companies, and he saw this trend occurring. And he's like, I'm going to go do a deal with these Magic the Gathering guys and and see if we can build some products, branded products for that growing sector. And so when I came in, it was right when they had gotten the, the licensing agreement done, which is shocking that they were able to do the agreement, you know, and meet with those people over at this company in Seattle that, and they had nobody that even played the game, let alone understood the game. And so when I got there, I didn't really know the game when I got there, but I was definitely into games and I was like, it really resonated with me. I was like, oh, this is cool. I like, I learned how to play and like I was into it and I love collecting things. So now they had a person on the team that could go and speak the language and they, you know, basically I became the ambassador of that relationship and I would go up to Seattle and I would go to trade shows and they'd send me around the world to all these different shows that we had. It was you know, and I was young, so I was like willing to take the red eye to to London for three days to do the trade show, and and I got to travel a lot, so I was happy, and they were happy because no one else wanted to do that, and I knew that I knew the product, and so I was able to like really cultivate that relationship, and we built, like I said, some amazing products that are still sold today in that industry, and it, and it just continued to grow, and so that was probably a part of the perfect storm that led them to be like, Hey, this guy can actually add value. He's making, he's having success for us here and making us real money on this new product line. And if he has ideas to improve processes, like let's hear him out. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm super familiar with ultra pro. I've spent a lot of money on magic cards and I don't really play, but I mean, I think that sort of speaks to the, to the, the beautiful business model that they have and all of the all the cards that I've invested into have Ultra Pro sleeves on them. So I was not expecting you to say Ultra Pro after you said that it was a plastics company, but that makes perfect sense. And I think that as you were as you were talking and going through it, my mind was just kind of spinning of like how that's just like the the classic business. You know, we have this kind of genericized. We you know we create plastic products, but then you know that's worth something, and people need you know plastic products. But then, yeah, you have something like, you know, okay, well, we have trading cards and it's important to protect those cards. But then you have this new wave that comes along and it makes perfect sense because now it's like something where, you know, they're not just like displaying the cards, they're actually 
playing with them and they're, you know, the the need to protect them is a lot higher. And I actually I don't know sort of what the behaviors are as far as buying sports cards, but I imagine that people who play games like Magic probably buy a, an order of magnitude more. So, you know, you have the ability to sell a a higher cost product because it's important to protect them. Uh, and then you're also selling more of them. So yeah, that totally, <laughs> the, the, it totally makes sense being in that spot. And, and wow, what a, what a cool experience for you being, you know, there for that. That fe- it feels like just being along for a huge wave and, you know, maybe having a little bit of confidence or, or something to say like, yeah, no, we can, we can totally go after this. It sounds like you were also just willing to raise your hand too. Like, oh, we need, we need somebody to, you know, jump on this 20 hour flight and, you know, it leaves and <laughs> it leaves in four hours and, you know, we need somebody to jump on there and you're like, yeah, sure. I'll do it. Yep. That was a big, you know, big piece. I realized that you know, a lot of people didn't want to do that. And they didn't, when they got to the trade show, it was like a drag for them. Whereas, you know, I, I had a blast at the trade show, you know, and, and that was like, it was a lot of fun. And I got to travel. I, I literally went to like 20 countries that, you know, the, over those two years and, and spent a lot of time on the road because there were so many trade shows and, you know, people knew me, they'd come to the show and be like, Hey, is that Jeff guy here? Like, what has he got going on? You know, or they'd, I show them some new products. I mean, really I was learning the art of customer development, you know, which is a core to my whole entrepreneur philosophy. And that my whole class on Udemy is about customer development because I was out there talking with customers and finding out what they needed. And then I would bring it back and I'd be like, look, these guys are having this problem, you know, and I translated that into a solution. And and you're totally right as it relates to, you know, when you build a business, you have to find a problem that is acute enough for a customer base that is large and that they'll pay to solve that problem. And in the baseball card space, it was a problem and people needed a way to store these cards. And some people wanted to store them in an archival safe way because they were going to be worth money, but a lot of them just wanted to store them. So they didn't really care, which is why a lot of competitors came out with cheaper products. But in the case of magic and these collectible cards, they were not only collecting, but they were, like you said, playing them. And which case you're putting more stress on the sleeve and therefore you need to replace it. So it was a better market in that sense because people had a a more acute pain and a more acute need that they had to continually pay for. And like, I I didn't put the dots together at that time that I was, you know, solving a better problem with a similar product, but it just, it proves that like, it's really about finding the right market, the right customer that has the specific need and then building a product that, that solves that. And it's exactly what we did. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Can you think of any other examples of talking to people at trade shows or, or interacting with people that are using the product and, and sort of what I was trying to think if you can like maybe go through a story of like, yeah, someone came to the trade show and they said this. And then I talked to enough people that had that same issue. And then we made this product and it was either a success or not a success. I was curious, like if you have any like examples of different stories that happened from that perspective. Well, in, when you're doing this customer development, which is, you know, talking to customers to find out their problems. A lot of times it's less about what they say and more about watching and observing what they do. And so people would come and they would tell me problems, but ultimately the biggest product that I launched, which is that one that I said, we've sold millions and and is still being sold today was largely from observation. And what I observed was that these 
kids that were playing this game would have our sleeves. And when you buy the magic cards, they come in a box. And in that box, they're, it's sized exactly for the card. But when you buy our sleeves, it also comes in a box. And that box is sized to our sleeve, which is a few millimeters larger. So you can't put a card that has a sleeve on it in the original magic box, but you can put it in our box. Our box was ugly and our box was made of cardboard. And so I saw all these people using these ultra pro boxes that came with their sleeves to store their decks and their boxes were tattered and they were ugly and they weren't effective and they'd break down and they'd have to use a new one. And I thought, why not make a box designed specifically to store your deck, which ultimately became this thing called the deck box. And I wanted to build something that addressed the breakdown of the material issue. So it had to be built in a stronger material. I wanted something that you could print. So it couldn't be like Lucite where it's clear and you can't really print well. I wanted something you could print like high quality four color printing on. So it had to be a certain kind of material. And so we did the R&D to find flexible yet rigid plastic that could be printed on, you know, with offset printing, which is like printing on paper. So you could get super high gloss, high quality print on the entire box. And the idea that I came up with versus the other thing I noticed was that with a traditional box, the flap on the top folds inward. And that was bad because that could have the tendency to push on your cards or push on the sleeves. And so it could damage your cards. And so I thought, okay, the flap on the top needs to close on the outside somehow. And so I started thinking back to growing up when in the 80s, when people still smoked and I remember Marlboro and the rest of the cigarette companies having these boxes where the flap opened on the top. I don't know if you remember, like these little like flip up boxes that your pack of cigarettes came in and you could close it and it wouldn't damage the cigarettes on the inside. I thought, what if we could make it in that shape? And so, you know, they did the R&D and we found this plastic and we tested the printing and they they were able to score the plastic in a way that they could make the top close and open that way with a piece of Velcro to hold it down. And we went to Magic and I showed them the idea. And I said, look, we can print your graphics all over these and we can sell them. We can make like six or seven different designs based on the current release art. And we launched that product and it was a huge hit. Everybody had them. People were buying five, six, seven decks and then or deck boxes. And then every quarter when Magic released their new graphics, we would print six or eight new ones. So there was, it was like a collectible in its own way and they looked amazing. And since then there's probably, if you go into any trading card store today, you'll probably see the ultra pro deck box, but you'll see dozens of other knockoffs. There's everybody's done. Everybody makes them now. And we sold, like I said, millions of those. And there's probably been millions and millions more sold by other companies since then. That's such a great example. And I mean, it's kind of a, a fortunate environment for you to be in because you can like physically observe people at these shows and you can watch people play magic and you can, I'm sure you saw somebody with like their old crappy box that the, the sleeves came in and you, you know, they, they go to pick it up and all the cards fall out the bottom and you're like, oh man, okay. You know, it's, it's, it's visible like how, how bad that is for them. So kind of a, it's such a, it's such a cool example of being able to just like watch your customers and understand the pain points and and maybe to your point maybe they didn't think that was a problem that was just a they they thought that was a fine but once you once you sort of solved the issue and then gave them a better solution you're like had pretty high confidence that like this is going to be 
way better and sort of matches the matches the behavior that we see everybody doing already. Exactly. I mean, that's the art of this customer development effort is you can't just ask someone what their problem is. Nine times out of 10, they're not going to be able to tell you. So if I had said like, you know, hey, what's the problem here? They'd be like, I don't have one. But when I observed them, they actually showed that they did have a problem. It didn't work well. There was a workaround, but it didn't really achieve the goal right. And so when I finally put a product in that solved that problem in their hands, they were like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. And, and that's the key. And a lot of founders, I think, make this mistake when they're launching their business, they come up with a problem and a solution, and then they either go to the market and they say like, hey, do you have this problem? And then, you know, nine times out of 10, someone will say, yeah, I have that problem. And then you launch the product and you find out like, actually, they don't really have that problem. They just said they did because it sounded obvious, but it really wasn't acute. Or you'll go to the market and you'll say, hey, what's your problem? And they won't be able to tell you that because they can't articulate it. They don't see it that way. And so the art is in extracting that by asking the right questions and doing the right observation to lead you as the entrepreneur to come up with a solution that actually meets that need. It's a very, it's very challenging. That's the main reason I think why startups fail is they are unsuccessful at that effort or, or frankly, don't even attempt to do it. Yeah. I, I, from the spot that I sit in, kind of seeing, understanding the finances of a lot of startups and sort of the the shape and, and the trajectory in which they go through, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's, there's a couple of like gates on forming a company. And I think the first is that you, you, you were already beyond this, you know, by the age of five, but, you know, actually getting started and actually taking action, you know, getting, getting things out of the idea stage and getting them into the the real world is a big gate. And I think being able to build something functional is a huge gate. And then kind of what you're discussing here, maybe it's, I'm getting a little bit over the kind of concept of like product market fit, because I think that that phrase has maybe gone, gotten past its, its usefulness, but you know, building something that people, that solves a problem that people want to pay for is a huge gate. And then I think even beyond that, you, okay, well, we built something that's really useful that solves a meaningful problem, but how do we get it to people? What's, what does distribution look like? So I think it's why you frequently see serial entrepreneurs are, are even as they're thinking about the thing that they're going to build next, they're already considering things like, like distribution, which maybe, maybe comes along too with, with doing really good customer development of understanding, okay, well, who, who not just, you know, is this a problem that people have that they want to solve, but you know, who are they and where are they? and How can I find them? And, uh, you know, are they, are they willing to pay money for this? It seems like there's a lot of, again, it kind of goes back to the, the whole topic that we are the whole, whole thing that we've been discussing of like, there are all these sort of skills that you need to develop that are very hard to train in isolation, but are, are really important to, to be successful in the long term. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of gates, you know, there are, and each one of them takes, is nuanced and hard to train and takes experience, you know, but that, I think this, my personal path is a, is a good one for people to see that, like, you don't necessarily have to work for Google to learn those skills and uh, then apply it to your startup. Like I'd say, if you did work at Google, you're probably going to have a chance, a higher probability chance of learning certain skills that will apply to launching your own business than if you work at some plastic manufacturing company, but not necessarily, right? You, you can 
acquire those skills in a lot of different ways, which is something I did. You know, I didn't plan it and maybe there's an easier, softer way. But yeah, I think the the experiences you go through and, and connecting those dots, you know, can get you those skills to, to push through each of those gates that it requires to launch a business. Yeah, well, I think that's a good segue to take us to your kind of next startup experience of building the building the company with the with the gaggle gaggle of founders and maybe maybe not being as as successful as you would have wanted. How did your experience going from from UltraPro to that company like what was that shift like for you? A lot of it was driven by ego, you know, which is not a great way to run your life in general, but also not a great way to build a business. I felt good about myself, which was a healthy thing. You know, I felt good about that experience there. I had joined another startup that had had some success and I made some money and so I was feeling pretty good about myself, but I really had not made the the connections between what I had learned and how that could be applied to starting a business. I was just like, "Oh, I must be awesome so I can start a business and it will work." was my assumption. And so, you know, when we when I gathered these friends together and and we went to go create something, I just, we didn't really do any of that work to find out what people actually wanted or what we could do that, that might meet a need in the market. We just like, Hey, let's build some, something cool that sounds neat, you know? And there were a lot of companies doing that at the time. And a lot of them, you know, ended up being successful just because it was that time of the, the tech arc where things that were not really that useful ended up still getting big. But at the end of the internet bubble, we didn't have that momentum, that market momentum. And because we weren't really meeting a real need, it just sort of failed. And that was, that was pretty painful from an emotional standpoint. Like it, it kind of took its toll because it's, it knocked me down. I was like, Hey, I'm kind of invincible. I'm like amazing. Like I can build anything. And then we launched this, pretty cool piece of software, but it just didn't have a place, you know, and it didn't really do anything that people needed. And people at that time when it was going from, Hey, I don't care what it does. I just want to be part of this whole internet thing to actually, you know, this internet thing has uses, but I'm not really going to participate unless it's useful to me. And so products like Google obviously did really well during that turn because it was like, I need to use the internet and Google solves a real freaking problem. I'm going to use that product. And people became, you know, more like that. And we, you know, we weren't doing that. And, and it just kind of fizzled out and we raised a little bit of money, raised a few hundred grand and we built some great tech. I had a couple of really good engineers and we built some cool stuff, but it fizzled out. And it, it, like I said, it took a big emotional toll on me. I, w- I was kind of like, oh, wait, what? I thought everything was all good. Why isn't this working? And it took several years after that before I started to build back up my confidence that I could launch a business and grow a business and try again. And it damaged, you know, a lot of relationships. Like, you know, that one friend that I was like best friends with in high school, we talked from time to time, but it was never the same. I mean, he lived with me for like four years after college and like we were really close and that just was permanently damaged, you know, that relationship, unfortunately. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds uh, pretty traumatic, frankly. It's interesting just with the, with the arc of, you know, going through school and feeling like, ah, oh, geez, like, you know, I'm, I'm dumb or I'm, I'm not the right shape <laughs> for this world. And then you, you get into college and you start to get a couple of little breadcrumbs of like, oh, cool. Well, I can, 
pass English and okay, you know, and I can have a good time and, and make friends. And, you know, so you're on this upward swing and then you, you have the experience at ultra pro and that goes really well. And you're like, wow, like, you know, we're able to have this huge effect. And so I can definitely see, you know, it's like you were low and then you were kind of ramped up and then I totally appreciate why you felt invincible. And then you started this company and you're like, yeah, this is going to be exactly like what I did at ultra pro, but bigger and better. And then it, it wasn't. <laughs> it was like, oh man, I-, I can totally see. Like, what were the next couple of years like for you as you tried to rebuild, you know, confidence from there? Well, I definitely wasn't of the mindset wanting to start another startup at that time. And I, you know, I I later now know that like there's ups and downs. You know, even in post big success with startups and exits there's still been failure too. So I I now sort of ride the wave. That's sort of something I've learned. But at that time, I I wasn't aware of that or ready for that. And so I did leave that experience knowing that I really liked technology and liked building software. You know, that was one of the things I really didn't like about UltraPro was the slowness and the analog aspect of it. And I really fell in love with the idea of solving business problems with software. And so I at least had confidence that that was a real thing, regardless if I could build a big business around it, I knew it was something I wanted to do. So I just started consulting, I just started taking on projects from my network that needed some kind of tech built. And it was still early enough in the internet period that there wasn't a lot of people doing that well. And so I was able to pick up consulting gigs where I would build whatever, you know, sometimes it'd be just a website, but mostly I try and build tools, like little admin tools to solve business things. And I, I got a couple of good clients that, you know, had successful businesses, but were doing things in an analog way and they wanted to do it in a digital way. And they would come to me and they would explain their business. And I would visualize in my head a tool and how to solve that with an actual tool. And I'd have, you know, I had these scrappy developers that would, that would build these tools for them. And so we had a a dev shop and that company was called ThinkLogic. And I, you know, I started to grow that and was making an okay living and started to get my confidence back that I was good at this. And I was building really useful stuff that was solving specific problems. Now they were solving problems for one company. They were very unique for those companies. So there wasn't a scalable business there. So I, and I still wasn't even, I still hadn't made the connection that like you had to, to build a company, you had to build a product or service that met the needs of a large audience in order to grow. I had definitely realized that in order to make money, you have to build something that is useful and solves a, a need for somebody, which I was now doing on an, on a one-off basis, but I still hadn't made that connection. And it really wasn't until the one friend from that startup that failed that we remained friends, tight friends, which incidentally, we were not close before. He was the one person that kind of got brought in that I didn't really know. He went to college with that one buddy. There wasn't a lot to damage there when it fell apart. So we, you know, so that one worked out good. And he was an engineer and he went to get his MBA during that time after that failure. He's like, I'm going to go back to business school and figure it out. And so when he came out, he was doing some some contract work for me. And he had learned in in business school that one missing element that I didn't know, which was you can build things to solve problems, but you want it to do it at scale. You have to solve it for a lot of people with the same product. And so he, he encouraged me to start thinking about what I was building in that way. 
And so for the next six months, I started looking at everything I was building and I started to see there was some trends and some similarities across clients where I was like, oh, well, this client, this client, and this client all have this one similar issue. And the tools I built for them, they all, they solve different stuff, but this one piece is actually consistent among all three. And that was a clue that maybe more customers or more, more companies out there had this one problem. And that, that was ultimately how was born because we realized that there was actually a lot of people, a lot of companies out there that had this, this particular sales related management issue, this CRM kind of issue that we ended up building a product for. Cool. Yeah. Tell me more about that experience with Philosophy. So as I started to realize that and, and my, my buddy Charles kept saying like, yeah, let's build a SaaS business. I didn't know any, I didn't know what a SaaS business was. He was like, you're where you make a piece of software and instead of them paying you 20 grand to build it, they pay you three grand a month to use it. And that really resonated. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Cause it, it only really costs a bunch to make it at first. And then if you can get people to keep paying you to use it, that's way better business. So I, that clicked. And so I told him and a couple other guys like, Hey, there's this one piece that we've been building for these different clients that is consistent. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe this could be this SaaS business you're thinking about. And we did some more research on the market and we basically came to the conclusion. And, and here's where timing is a huge factor, right? There's so many gates, like you said, you have to go through to launch a business that works. There's all these factors, but one other factor that you can't really control is timing of the market. And at that time, one thing was happening that was just a perfect storm, which was the mortgage industry was on fire. And it, I mean, ironically, it ended up being a almost the reason that we went under, like we almost went under years later, which I'll tell that story. But at that time, there was this whole subprime thing where people were just refinancing their homes or getting loans and mortgage the mortgage industry was on fire and I didn't know anything about the mortgage industry, but I realized that like we had like six of these mortgage companies as clients. I didn't put two and two together until that moment. And I realized that they all had this same problem of, Hey, I'm getting all these inquiries from consumers that are wanting to refinance their house because rates are so low and rates are, they have these special subprime mortgage models that turned out obviously to not work. But at the time it was like, oh, this is awesome. Like the customer gets money and you know, we make a huge fee and everything's great. And so these guys were getting all these inquiries and they started all these lead gen companies started popping up like lower on bills and lending tree. And all these guys were generating these leads for these mortgage companies and they couldn't hire mortgage loan officers, brokers fast enough. And this perfect storm, especially in Southern California was growing. And they had no tools to manage this high volume of consumer inquiries, these consumer leads. And so we built this SaaS tool, which was called Lead360 at the time, to manage those high amount of leads. And it was designed to allow a company to have, in some cases, hundreds or even thousands of people working phones getting inquiries and managing these prospects as efficiently as they could such that they closed more deals. And so it had a direct impact on their bottom line. Like if they use our software, they made more money. It was just like, it was that simple. And so it was, it was easy to sell. And we had a lot of data to prove that it actually worked. 
And we rode that wave and grew really, really fast on the backbone of that market trend. That's awesome. It sounds like you got yourself back into that <laughs> that similar spot of being able to find the find the trend. And this time you used your own, the data that you had from the consultancy experience to start to push you in that right direction. And then you 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 were able to to use your you know use your market census to say, oh, okay, well, this is this is coming. And you even mentioned, like, oh, we even have customers currently that have this problem. And you were able to to push that forward into a solution that really had like not necessarily an easy pitch, but you could you could make the argument of like, hey, if you use this, you will make more money. And you know, companies are 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 generally pretty willing to to listen to that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, there's it's still challenging. We it wasn't like a we call them up and they send us a check. Although there was a there was a period probably of six or nine months where it was that easy. But at first it took some convincing and explaining and showing and the product was very basic. And over time, as we learned what the needs were, and we built more features, and we really tailored the product to to the need, we became the de facto tool that you used. And and incidentally, one thing that happened, which which ended up being a great learning experience. And I, and by the way, I I was now of the mindset that like, I had done enough of this sort of this work where I didn't know why things were working. Like now I was kind of connecting the dots better. So I was like, okay, let me be a little more pragmatic about this. Like, okay, that connects with that. Like I see this. So I was starting to become a real entrepreneur by now. And what happened that was really exciting related to the, the sales process was these companies that were generating these leads like LendingTree, they would, someone would go on LendingTree.com and, you know, banks compete and you win. That was their whole slogan. Slogan. And a consumer would fill out a form, a little form saying they want to refinance their home. They put in some information and then LendingTree, who th- that was a brilliant business model too, the whole lead gen model. They would then say, okay, Mr. Homeowner, you want a loan? I'm going to send your lead to five of our clients, five different mortgage brokers or mortgage companies that are essentially selling the exact same product. They're going to fight to get your business. And that seemed like a good pitch to the consumer. And to some extent, it was a good pitch, although later it became more of a headache for consumers than than not. But at that time, it was great. And then they basically were capitalizing on one lead being sold to five companies. And they didn't really care what happened after that. But LendingTree and particularly Lower My Bills, this guy, Matt Coffin, was running this company, Lower My Bills, who turned out to be a genius entrepreneur and I learned a lot from, and he was kind of a mini mentor to me. He came to the conclusion because he saw a problem in his own business that he would sell these leads to five mortgage companies. Those mortgage companies sucked at closing those leads because they weren't using a product like ours. And they would call up low my bills and they'd say, these leads are bad. These leads don't close. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a customer anymore. And he was like, no, they're not, they're not bad. And then he would dig in and he found that these people, these loan officers and these mortgage companies weren't actually calling the leads. They'd get a lead and it would just sit there because they were just overloaded. And so he came to the conclusion that like, hey, if these guys had a tool that actually helped them follow up on these leads, they would close more and they wouldn't have trip. So that guy then went to the market and started looking for a tool. He didn't want to build one. He's like, somebody's out, got to be out there doing it. And he found us and we kind of knew about him at the same time because our clients were buying from, from Low My Bills. And so we started talking and he said, we're going to promote you guys. We're going to tell our clients to use your tool. And for those next like six months, every time Lower My Bills would get a new customer, a new mortgage officer, a new mortgage company would come to them to say, hey, I want to buy your leads. 
they would say, and they literally said this for like six months until they didn't want to be completely in our, our boat. They said, I will not sell you leads until you implement Leads 360. Like, I don't want to waste my time with you. It's a waste. So that was like, okay, he'd send us the referral. We'd sign him up. Three days later, they'd be on and then they'd be getting leads and, you know, everybody won. And so for that six months, it was literally like a one call close. Like, hey, I've got a new client. They're about to come on low my bills. Okay, cool. Set them up. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) That was like the ultimate partnership. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, what a, what a win-win of, you know, they, they're in the spot where it's like, well, it's like, if they don't make you money, they make less money. So it's like, it's like, well, yeah, of course I would do this. And they had, you know, I think that's like a really sharp entrepreneurial tendency. Cause I think a lot of people would want to build that system themselves, but they thought about it intelligently. I think of like, well, we can decrease our churn for $0. And, you know, like, and, and like zero time, like you already had the system set up, you were already doing well, and you were already in the space. So yeah, what a what a smart partnership that I'm sure you were, you were thrilled to <laughs> to engage in as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a great. And I, incidentally, I learned in, a really interesting thing that I've, I've shared with entrepreneurs and, and students in that business development partnerships regularly and most of the time fail. And I, I see this all the time, you know, with companies that are like, oh, how are you going to grow? Oh, we're going to do a partnership with this other company and they're going to help us grow. And my sort of feedback is, and my experience has been that even if a partner of yours sells to the exact customer you want to sell to, so you're talking to company, whatever, and they are selling their product or service to the exact person that you want to sell your product or service. It seems logical that if they became your partner, they could also either sell your product to their customer or refer you to their customer. But the problem is, even though that is true, the problem is that unless what you, what we bring to the table actually helps that partner do their business better, they're not going to get behind the partnership. It's just a distraction. Even if you say, look, we're going to pay you $500 every time we bring on a client, it's not significant enough because their primary goal is to sell their product or service better or more or reduce churn or whatever. You have to play into that. So when I look at partnerships now, I basically say no to any business development partnership unless the partnership helps them do their core business better. And unfortunately, that's a rare alignment. It doesn't usually align. And so I say no to a lot of business development relationships because of that, because they're just not going to work. It's not a good use of time. But in the case of the Lower My Bills and Lending Tree one, our product did help them do their business better. They reduced churn. They made more money. So it was like clear, a clear, perfect fit. So I really look for that now when I when I think about business development partnerships. Totally. Yeah. It, it's one of those learnings that like, as soon as you say it out loud, it makes perfect sense of like, well, a partner is not going to want to work with you if the benefit from the partnership is just for you and not that company. <laughs> like if you can help someone else make more money, then they want to talk to you. Otherwise, they're just going to focus on running running their business. Yeah. And I had a very similar personal experience where I I sold a company to a business that was looking to broaden their offering. And we just we had a lot of issues. Like we we sort of walked into the acquisition thinking that there was going to be a huge cross-sell opportunity. And then what we learned was that, oh, well, while these products are in like a similar category, they think about us for solving this one problem. They came to us with one problem and us introducing a solution to something that's similar is like, oh, well, 
now you're you're go- putting me down the purchasing decision on a different problem. And the customer, most of the time, had not identified that as an issue that they're willing to solve. So it was kind of like, you know, you're you're going into buy a car and they said like, well, hey, like, wouldn't you like to have like a security system? And it's like, well, I can see how these things are like technically related, but the issue, the job to be done here is that I want to be able to like get back and forth to the office. And this other thing is like totally. So I think that happens. In, yeah. And even on the, you know, from my side on the, the you know, in the private equity world, we see the same thing around acquisitions and bolt-ons and that sort of thing. I think sometimes it takes a really great example of people seeing it done right to <laughs> to understand that, you know, where a lot of times partnerships just just don't work, or even acquisitions don't work for for exactly those reasons that you outlined. Yep. Yeah, that was a good I'm glad I had that experience because I've been able to look to replicate it and and help others to, you know, avoid it when it lo- it just probably won't work. It's just a waste of effort and time and you, and you're so limited in your resources like you got to pick the things that have the highest probability of of producing results. Yeah. You set a high bar and so now you're able to sort of see like okay, well, you felt it before. You can sort of have an intuition of like does this meet that same level of quality or are we kind of are we kind of forcing this thing in a in a weird way? Jeff, I'm, I'm looking at the time here. This is this has been awesome, and I think that you know we could probably talk a lot longer. But I don't want I don't want to keep you keep you all day. And if we you know if we get the feedback, we'll we'll do a round two. I, I think especially around customer development is something that's very near and dear to to my heart as well. And it sounds like we could talk more on that, or uh, we could just send people to your Udemy course and they could <laughs> they could get you know that's your that's your best thinking and and you know your best preparation on those topics. But yeah, I just wanted to leave a little bit of of time here at the end to say like, well, hey, like, what are you doing now? What's going on? Where can people find you? If people were really intrigued by some of the topics that we've talked about today, like where else would you send them? And and what other you know not to put too much pressure on it, but what other parting thoughts would you leave <laughs> would you leave everybody with? Well, I'm pretty accessible. I do enjoy working with founders and other entrepreneurs. And so I've definitely reduced my motivation to be, to make billions. You know, I've had some great exits and and made some good money and and I like, you know, I want to support myself, but I'm not really as motivated by the money as I used to be. So for that reason, you know, more open to, to working with people, I'm very accessible. You know, my personal website is probably the best way to get to me, which is back.me, B-A-K.me. And you can obviously get to the course that way, but uh, you can take calls with me on Clarity. I do a lot of Clarity calls. In fact, I'm like one of the top experts on that on that site. I mean, that's just, you know, they're just by the minute phone calls. I do direct advisory things when I think I can add a lot of value and it, it sounds like it's going to be exciting for me. And you can email me directly from from my site. So I'm not hidden sure, out there. Yeah, <laughs> not, um, a, not a hermit. So that, by any means. Yeah. So that's, that's one. And then I still love building stuff. So, you know, right now I have a SaaS business that is small and growing, but it's just three of us that are working on it. And it's kind of on the side and, you know, we're still trying to find our way. That company's called Markup Hero. It solves a problem that in something I've learned now in this, in this process that like, you know, competition and commoditized things, even though there's a huge need and demand, like you got it there, they have their own challenges. And this particular category of, of screenshotting and, and file annotation is something that you can do a lot of different ways. And, you know, we're trying to solve it in a way where, you know, we do it the best and that you'll want to use this versus another. Like I said, it has a lot of challenges when you, when the Mac and the PC has a built-in one. 
And so I'm learning a lot about, about that. And in, in a lot of my experience with my companies, I've been in a space where competition hasn't been the major factor of failure in this business a little bit, a little bit is. So it's a little harder to acquire customers, but you know, we're starting to see some growth there and it's a great tool. And you know, the users that we, we do have and do get every day are really liking it. So I encourage you to check that out. If you're not, if you're not using screenshots and not annotating files to, you know, post into Slack or put in your notion documents or wherever you communicate, you're definitely slower than you should be. So if you, if you aren't doing that, that process, that's something I, you know, it's something I do every single day, which is why I built it. I was solving my own problem, which is a great way to start a business. So you can check that out at markuphero.com. And, and then, you know, I'll say, I'll leave the, this last little learning that I had, which was a Velocify learning before I started Amplify, which was the, the fund that we created here in LA. You know, at some point, the company grew to 100 plus people. I had done every single role in the company from CEO to head of marketing, head of product, head of en- enterprise sales. Like I, I'm just sort of a jack of all trades, which is what I love about being an entrepreneur. But it, when you start to get to a certain point, your company starts to need specialists and not generalists, you know? And so we had a head of marketing, we had a head of sales, we had a you know head of product. We had all these people that we had hired that were great at that one thing. And I was good at all those things. And so I started to realize that like, Hey, I'm not getting to do everything I I like to do. And when it was a small company, and I'm also kind of being disruptive, I'm getting in the way of some of these people that we just hired to do this specific job. It was causing us not to be able to scale as well as we needed to. And, and I came to the conclusion that that it was time for me to sort of step away from a day-to-day operational standpoint. And, you know, I still maintained my, my stock and my board seat and that kind of stuff. But I realized I could apply my talents and my interests elsewhere. And that was a tough decision, like leaving your baby that you had been running for like eight years when it's like growing and doing really well, really hard. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that get stuck that they have to see it through to the end. And some entrepreneurs are built for that. Like, and that's great. But I encourage people to kind of look at like, you know, where you fit in, what your skills are, what you enjoy. And it turned out to be a really profitable decision because I wasn't going to make any more money if I left at year eight or I left at year 13 when we sold it. It was the same same exit. And so I was able to apply those four or five years in between to other things and build up value there. And Amplify has done really, really well. And so of other companies I started in that time. So it was a, it was a profitable decision. It was just a difficult one. And so I would encourage people to kind of think about that and, and not get stuck on like, no, I started this business. I have to see it through to the end. It's something you don't, you don't have to. And that worked out really well for me. Yeah. That's a that's an awesome summary, especially from your experience thinking about, you know, people get stuck in that should. Like, well, I should follow this through, or I I can just I just need to be tougher and I just need to be whatever. And, you know, really think about like, well, you know, what are you what are you built for and what do you have that energy for? And, you know, what's the what's the decision that you make today that you're going to be happiest with five years from now? You know, not like not like next week and and that way. So I think that's yeah, I, I love that. That's a that's an uh, amazing insight to end on. I'm confident people are going to be seeking you out, asking you more questions and and, and checking out. But yeah, Jeff, I, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you sharing everything. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Great interview. I really liked how you got into the the depths of more nuanced things. So it was fun talking about Ultra Pro. It's been a long time since I got to share about that. So thanks for digging in on that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Cool, man. All right. Have a good one. That was our conversation with Jeff Solomon, co-founder of Markup Hero. 
you want to save a ton of time annotating screenshots and files, you know where to go. MarkupHero.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out, Barometrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. We're able to share with a friend or leave a review. It goes a long way. Thanks for listening.